I had a very strange childhood. Had the worst case any doctor had ever seen. My job is to keep healing. So that is the story. We all have remarkable stories within us. Stories of adversity, challenges, triumphs, and ultimately of healing. This is Your Health, Your Story, the podcast. The Year America's Hair Fell Out. That's the title of an article in Atlantic that was published at the end of 2021. People often think of hair loss as a genetic issue, but we're realizing more and more that hair loss is also correlated to overall health. And as this article notes, the pandemic has been a near-perfect mass hair loss event for both men and women alike. The writer of the article, Amanda Mull, was inspired to write it due to her own hair loss problems. From emotional stress to nutritional deficiencies to toxins, we're dedicating this entire episode to hair loss causes as well as the holistic solutions. And today's guest knows about hair. He's been voted the number one top hair restoration surgeon in all of North America and has performed over 10,000 hair transplant procedures and over 8,000 PRP treatments. Oh, and he's also a big biohacker. This is the story of holistic hair restoration with Dr. Alan Bauman. Well, Dr. Bauman, thank you so much for being here. You know, you've been doing this for quite some time, since 1997, I know. And your practice, Bauman Medical, is considered one of the top 20 hair restoration places uh, practice in the world. But you actually have a really interesting story about how you got into hair restoration as a specialty. So could you walk us through your story as this is your healthier story? I'd love to hear that and what the process was to get you to there. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you having me on today. You know, the origin story of my medical career, uh, if you asked my grandmother, when did I decide I wanted to go to medical school, she probably would have said the day he was born. <laughs> so it was uh, kind of an arranged marriage, I guess, that I always uh, was going to end up uh, becoming a physician, but I didn't really know exactly what type. And I had these really unique opportunity when I was a teenager to observe surgery. And remember, this is back in the 1980s. So we didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Snapchat. We didn't have uh, even Discovery Channel was, was uh, I don't think was around. So um, I really didn't know what surgery was or what it entailed. And uh, a close friend of the family invited me to watch him operate. I didn't even know really what kind of a surgeon he was. Uh, and so with a little investigation, it turns out he was a pretty prominent plastic surgeon in New York City. And so he gave me my first taste of being in an OR. And he said, hey, stand here. Don't touch anything blue. And if anybody asks, tell them you're a medical student. And uh, they don't know anything either. So <laughs> that's kind of how uh, uh, I got introduced to the sights and the smells uh, of surgery. And then, of course, in his, uh, uh, in his office and meeting his patients and seeing how uh, – their lives were changed from their cosmetic procedures and reconstructive procedures, I, I really felt like this was something I wanted to pursue. But again, I wasn't 100% sure. I kind of just uh, felt my way through medical school eventually. And then uh, I did my internship and residency in general surgery. But I did have the opportunity to stay connected to that mentor of mine for many, many years. And I worked very closely and shadowed him. And it was really one of his patients that introduced me to hair transplants because as a general surgeon interested in plastic surgery, really didn't see any hair transplant procedures. I didn't know what it entailed. I thought they were all just kind of pluggy and painful and like, why would anyone bother with that? You know, that type of thing. And that was pretty much the prevailing uh, information that everybody had, even as a physician. 
back in the early 1990s. And this patient really opened my eyes to really what a hair transplant could be. And so he was coming in for something else. And I was doing my due diligence, you know, as a good intern or resident, you know, taking a detailed medical history. And he said that he had had a hair transplant. And I'm looking, trying to figure out where on his head did he have the transplant? Because it certainly looked natural to me. And so the conversation went like this, you know, uh, well, can you tell me like where you had your hair transplanted? And he said, oh, up in Toronto. And I said, well, oh, that's kind of interesting. Here we are in New York and you had it up there. But I was actually asking about, you know, where on your head you had it done. <laughs> and uh, so we laughed about it. And, uh, you know, he told me the story about how he sought out this surgeon who was doing single follicle implantation, really the state of the art microscopic types of procedures, which was pretty new at that time. And his results looked amazing. And I was just fascinated by his layperson's description of the transplant procedure. You know, this, this labor intensive uh, labor of love, if you will, and the artistry that was involved and how great the results looked. Of course, he was so stoked that I couldn't tell that he had had a hair transplant. So he was pretty elated about that. But really what stuck in my mind about that conversation, and the conversation was probably only about maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes long, perhaps, was how he described it changed his life. So he told me about socially, professionally, how his attitude completely changed, how he stepped into a new career, a new relationship, and uh, his life totally looked different, he told me, after the transplant had grown in. And that kind of stuck with me because here I was in a path towards plastic and reconstructive procedures, and I've been studying and, and, and shadowing my first mentor on that. And I really hadn't thought anything about hair transplants at all, much less know about how they were done. So that kind of was the spark uh, in a little kindling there that kind of started the fire, as, you as we would say, and started my journey to investigate it a little bit further and, and so forth. And so there were a lot of other steps and stages, obviously, to learn about the procedure and what it was, what it entailed, to get training, to find another mentor, a physician who would actually teach me and train me and brought me into his practice many years later, uh, you know, to kind of finish off. That's where I, I you know, I, I really learned how to do hair transplants. And I decided to take time off of my residency and internship to do that. And honestly, never looked back. I just went straight into hair transplants after that. So after a year of fellowship training and mentorship from a hair transplant surgeon out on Long Island, I decided to move to Florida uh, with my wife. We were engaged at the time and to start the practice really with no knowledge about how to start a business at all, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but uh, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> But that's kind of how I got my start, really seeing how cosmetic procedures and especially the hair changed someone's life. And that's uh, and that's really how I, I kind of built the practice, thinking about how I was going to change these patients lives, really one person at a time. Yeah. And that's that's a lot of what medicine is. It's changing people's lives in all different ways. And health is about having a healthy self-confidence. It's about actually, you know, evolving into yourself and feeling good about yourself in any way possible. So, you know, hair restoration is is such a big topic. Now, you've been doing this for so long, and I wanted to ask you, because it's been 1997, even before that, you were looking at this. And have you noticed an increase over the years of people with hair loss? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, my practice has grown over the years. You know, uh, I've treated over 30,000 patients and year over year, every single year, the practice has grown. Uh, and especially in the most recent years since the pandemic, we've seen uh, hair loss exacerbated by stress, 
of course, the stress of lockdowns, um, restrictions, lack of social contact, interruptions in self-care, even just lack of exercise, to be honest, and more toxic behaviors uh, lead to people less able to cope with the stress of daily life. And then you have, you know, some economic issues and other hardships on top of that. You know, there were food supply issues and, you know, getting things delivered by DoorDash and whatnot, you know. People didn't want to go to the supermarket or go out for dinner and things like that. But then also people who were actually infected with COVID-19, you know, suffering from COVID had the traditional post uh, febrile telogen effluvium, which is a hair loss shedding uh, due to the cytokine storm is what we Mm -hmm. what we think is related to that. And then now uh, with the vaccines, it really sends people's immune system for a loop. So if they have uh, immune mediated uh, alopecias, hair loss and such, uh, we're seeing a lot more of that. So I think we're seeing a lot more hair loss, uh, I guess, just being accelerated or exacerbated these days, because our level of stress has doubled, tripled and quadrupled for many folks out there. Uh, and they're not just they're just simply not taking as good care of themselves mentally and physically as they did perhaps before. So, yeah, I'm seeing a lot more hair loss uh, than I, uh, you know, than, than we did years ago. For sure. That was my hypothesis because you just see so many more people in a stressful situation. Of course, the pandemic has made it more stressful and then just so much more anxiety, which is always a a sort of precursor to hair loss. You know, one of the things that struck me there that I got to pry into just a little bit more is that idea of both COVID and the vaccine. You know, I understand the pandemic, the stress of that itself, but a viral infection and then an immunization can be leading into that. Could you just talk a little bit more on those two? Because I know that's on everyone's mind is I'm either sick with Omicron, like it seems like most of the nation is right now testing positive, And I won't go into whether the tests are this or that, but it seems that way, at least they're sick with something. And then there is the other side that is boosting, right? And continuing in Israel, you're on four and probably going to continue on like the flu vaccine seasonally. So can you go into that and how that's really impacting? Yeah. I mean, it's really not a surprise to those of us who deal with hair loss that a high fever could cause a shedding or what we call a telogen effluvium. And in fact, this was noticed back in the Spanish flu. So early in the 1900s, when the Spanish flu was going around, this was the first time that post-febrile alopecia or post-febrile telogen effluvium really popped up in the clinical literature. And it was a pretty accurate description of the symptoms, right? Six, four to six weeks out from the, uh, from the high fever, patients would have this effluvium of hair. They would lose, uh, literally handfuls of hair in many cases, a lot of shedding. Good news is that it was temporary and it seemed to rebound, uh, pretty well in the months following. And so we've seen a lot of that with, uh, COVID infection and certainly with the long haulers. So, you know, are the long haulers different? Do they have some kind of underlying condition that was maybe not, you know, maybe that was subclinical that we didn't notice ahead of time and this kind of just exacerbated it? I think that's probably a likely story that there's some underlying issues with some of these patients. And certainly the case with a lot of our patients who had kind of been dealing with some maybe seasonal shedding that was kind of mild, but concerning because maybe they had some hair loss in the family. And then boom, they're hit with COVID and this seasonal shed turns into like, you know, a massive effluvium and a massive loss of hair mass where we measure, you know, density and hair caliber and such. And we can track these things over time. So, you know, we've we've been really dealing with a lot of that. And what I've noticed is that 
in patients who have had a tendency towards hereditary hair loss, who have maybe been on treatment for some time and really doing okay with their therapies, improving their hair, cal- their hair counts and hair caliber and their measurements and so forth, then all of a sudden they, they get a setback in their numbers appearing in this typical time frame, this six to 12 week timeline and uh, with a visible sign of shedding. And so it's almost like it's an acceleration of that traditional male or female pattern hair loss, the hereditary hair loss, which most of us are susceptible to at least a little bit, uh, seems to have gotten a lot worse. And then, of course, there's the other category of the autoimmune alopecias. And of course, if you have an autoimmune condition, underlying situation that's affecting uh, your immune system, whether it be a thyroid or your skin or you name it, and then uh, you get hit with the uh, with with uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, that can be thrown for a loop and, and you can get an exacerbation of, of scalp health issues, uh, seborrheic dermatitis, um, alopecia areata can pop up. You know, we're seeing an exacerbation of some of the scarring alopecias. So there's a lot of things that are going on you know, due to this, let's just say the cytokine storm or this inflammatory response that of the body, which is trying to fight off the virus. Yeah. I, I have to say that, you know, during this time, it's, it's something probably that isn't in the head quite yet. Well, that's not a pun intended, but isn't right there. Meaning you, you're, you're more focused on the virus cell. You're more focused on health and safety, but this is an effect of poor health and, and something that should be addressed more. Now, one of the things that people always think is that genetics is a driving factor. And I know you talk about SNPs and how they regulate hair characteristics. Can you go into that? And if it truly is the truth that genetics are the driving factor in, in hair loss, both in men and women? Well, I mean, look, there's uh, you know big textbooks that describe hundreds of different types of hair loss conditions. Uh, how many of them are specifically linked to hereditary causes? I don't know if we'll ever know exactly, but obviously the most common types of hair loss that we see out there, you can see it in a man visible to the naked eye, a receding hairline, balding in the crown. That's hereditary androgenetic alopecia. That's male pattern hair loss. That comes from your family. So that is inherited along with hundreds of other uh, genetic uh, tendencies of hair color, quality, texture, how soon you're going to notice the hair loss, how fast it progresses, what's the end pattern uh, so there's a lot of different variables that can kind of go into that hereditary condition um, and accelerating it or, or making it happen slowly over time. So that's most, most of what we see in the practice. And of course, female pattern hair loss might look a little bit different. Women might notice not necessarily so much change to their hairline, but more of a diffuse loss in the frontal zone, maybe a little bit of a recession of the hairline. Uh, it might be excessive shedding or loss of ponytail volume that brings them in. Um, that's very common or a widening part line when that occurs. So these SNPs that you mentioned, the single nucleotide polymorphisms are really interesting to me because when we do genetic testing or when we've have done genetic testing in the past, like I think in 2008, 2009, the first tests came out for genetic uh, hair loss uh, testing, we could see what the risk of male or female pattern hair loss was. And then there were some other tests that could basically just tell us, are you likely to respond to one type of medication or another? Are you going to be, for example, androgen sensitive or not? And that can kind of give you a hint as to what route to take. But today we have a test called Trico test, which is really exciting. And it looks at 16 different SNPs, three polymorphisms on each. So you got about 48 different responses that could come out of that test. 
And it looks at different metabolic um, pathways, if you will, and also enzyme activity. So just as a great example, one of the things that we use that test to determine is, let's say you've tried Rogaine over-the-counter minoxidil in the past, which was the first FDA-approved drug, and you've tried it for a period of time, you gave it enough time, you gave it a good try, but you didn't really see much of an effect. Well, we didn't really know why 20 to 40% of people didn't have a good effect from minoxidil until now. Now we know that there's an enzyme in your skin that converts minoxidil, it comes out of the bottle into minoxidil sulfate, which is the active ingredient or the active metabolite, I should say, that affects the hair follicle and its production of the hair fiber. And if you have a low sulfotransferase activity, that's that enzyme, then you're not going to be a great responder to just the regular over-the-counter minoxidil. And so what do we do then? Well, we would use a, a, a compounded pharmaceutical minoxidil with a booster. And there's a few like tretinoin and others that can be combined with minoxidil to ramp up your body's sulfotransferase enzyme so that now you're a better responder to that medical therapy. And there's a bunch of other things too. You know, there's, you know, collagen production, which is really key for skin and for hair, for nails, of course. There's also uh, androgen pathways that will create DHT. Then DHT is the bad guy that causes male pattern hair loss. And there's a couple of enzymes that create DHT. And we can figure out if there's a high level of enzyme activity, then we might want to use an off-label anti-androgen therapy. So there's some pretty exciting stuff that we just can now dial down. It's not just, you know, Propecia and Rogaine anymore. You know, we've got compounded minoxidil versions. We've got different types of finasteride, which was the old Propecia. We've got dutasteride, other types of medications that can go along behind it and uh, really tailor the medical therapies directly to that patient's unique individual genetic makeup. Uh, using trichotest, which is super cool. So it's another level of personalized precision medicine now for hair loss. Yeah, it's really cool that you're able to do that now and look at it and go beyond. I I mean, you look back to where things were 10, 20 years ago, and it literally was, you know, minoxidil, which was Rogaine and finasteride, which was Propecia. That's all people told you about or all they thought about. And then I remember in 2007 is, I think it was one of the first times I remember hearing about you because I remember we as a company were distributing the Hairmax laser comb and it got FDA approved as the only non-drug, right? FDA approved, which is low level laser therapy. And that's something I want to talk to you about because you have now that also has come a long way since 2007 and just I think it was one little laser on little plastic mirrors that reflected. You'd have to comb for a long time. So tell us about that, because I I do want to go into more of these holistic, maybe non-drug related solutions and and laser therapy seems to be one of the best ones and ones that you've been pioneering for a long time. Yes. So my first experience with laser therapy was back in 1999. Uh, I was working with a distributor here in Boca Raton, Florida, who was importing a variety of different things for the hair industry. And he was working with companies that had nutraceuticals overseas that we didn't have here in the US. He had uh, imported large laser devices that were more like, they looked like uh, big hair dryers that would (laughs) sit down over the scalp. And he says, well, if you're growing hair with transplants and medications, you need a laser. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're not doing any laser hair removal. We're just growing hair. He's like, no, no, no. Low level laser grows hair. I'm like, I'm not so sure about that. This is, you know, again, 1999. And he says, well, they've got some 
you know, evidence and, and information and, and clinical trials that have been done in Sweden and so forth, you know, maybe you should take a look at some of that. And I said, well, yeah, sure. I'll take a peek. But hey, if you have one of those lasers hanging around, let's put it in my office and I'll give it a try. You know, we'll put some patients under it. And of course, we rounded up some friends and family and, and some patients uh, to try under these huge lasers. And I was determined to show that it didn't work. I really was. And so we put them under the laser, you know, a couple times a week. And man, I couldn't believe even even one of my uh, relatives who had psoriasis or the scalp, his psoriasis improved. And his barber's asking him, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, you're growing a bunch of hair. What are you doing? And, of course, he told that uh, he was getting laser therapy treatments. And so I gave my some of my before and afters to a very pretty prominent physician in the International Society of Hair Restoration Surgery. And the first presentation ever on low-level laser therapy uh, included my before and afters uh, at the ISHRS, International Society of Hair Restoration Surgery Conference in um, Puerto Vallarta that year, which was right after 9-11, actually. So it was an interesting conference to go to in Mexico. Um, but certainly, and then also, as you mentioned, the laser comb people, the Max, uh, were based locally here, Delray, uh, Boca Raton. And so uh, we were certainly using some of those portable devices and uh, in those early days, way before the FDA clearances came available. But wow, have we come a long way from single laser beams uh, to what we have today? I mean, the turbo laser cap is got the largest number of diodes. It's got over 300 diodes in it. It's got a five minute treatment time. It's collapsible, completely portable. And this device, which, you know, I can show you, it just packs completely flat, is much more powerful than those big early lasers that we had that were, you know, $100,000 devices that uh, we had sitting in the office. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing how far things have gone, because I remember those devices and they were like a hairdryer that you used to, the women would sit, right? And now you have these these other ones. And and that leads me to another very hot topic in in biohacking, which I know you're very into, is red light. In general, right? Red light LEDs, oh, yeah. everything, red light for mitochondrial health. Differentiate that kind of the laser light versus red light versus infrared light. What what are you looking for as far as the light spectrum and technologies to regrow hair? Well, the vast majority of research has been done in the visible red spectrum when it comes to hair regrowth. And the reason is because that, that wavelength spectra that we see is red light. Now, usually somewhere between 630 and 670 nanometers, that's the color red that we see. That has the highest absorption at a cellular level. So um, researchers like Dr. Michael Hamblin, who is really the guru of photobiomodulation, and he really detailed out all the mechanisms of action in the recent years through being probably the most prolific researcher and publisher on photobiomodulation in the world. He's the one who kind of elucidated those pathways. And so what we know is that red light is then absorbed at the level of the mitochondria and the mitochondria, which are the energy centers within the cells basically get charged up and make energy, right? Kind of like a battery from this red light, the photons of light at that wavelength. And they're absorbed at the mitochondrial membrane, right at the cytochrome C oxidase, which is the electron transport chain. And you get this major output of ATP, which is the cellular fuel, if you will. And it's used for a lot of different things. And there's huge cascades that occur from you know energy production to anti-inflammatory cascades. But I, really the the main focus for hair regrowth has always been in that red light spectrum. 
could these other uh, spectra be helpful? Like, you know, generating some heat at the level of the scalp may actually help us with the transmission of, let's say, pharmaceuticals or other topicals into the scalp. So there's some improvements when you when you heat up the scalp a little bit or the skin, you get better penetration. Some of the far infrared penetrates a little bit deeper. So if you're trying to treat the, the bone or even brain tissue and things like that, they use that in traumatic brain injury and stroke patients, things like that. But for superficial work at the scalp, I mean, today, the go-to wavelengths are really visible red. So that's what's in the turbo laser cap. That's what we've used here in the practice in tens of thousands of patients. Um, we use it for wound healing after hair transplant surgery. We use it before and after every biotherapy treatment, every PRP, every platelet-rich plasma, every PDO grow, every FUE hair transplant. We're using red light therapy. And even to the point where we're doing a photo activation of our platelet mixtures before we do the injection of those platelets and monocytes into the scalp, because we know that there's some cellular activity that bumps up uh, from that red light exposure. Well, let's talk about that because, you know, PRP is is a a fascinating treatment. Of course, it got, I think, most prominently known as a vampire facial with Kim Kardashian. And then, of course, with regenerative medicine, people like Rafa Nadal and Tiger Woods using them into the knee. But we have seen, at least in the past few years, if not longer, that it has quite a, you know, an effect on the scalp and hair restoration. So can you go into that and maybe some of the advances you've been able, like the photo activation of platelet-rich plasma? Sure, sure. So PRP has been a part of the practice for over 17 years. We've done over 10,000 PRP treatments. And I'll tell you, there's been a lot of changes. So uh, we all started off with the wound healing skin PRP uh, you know, most derms are familiar with kind of a test tube gel separator, you know, I call it a salad spinner type PRP. <laughs> That's a pretty basic version. It's probably what Kim Kardashian had and for skin and wound healing that probably works. Okay. But one of the things that we've learned is that there's a dose dependent relationship between the effect on the hair follicle and the number of platelets that you can put in the PRP. And so that's a key factor and you're not going to get a high density platelet count with a test tube and a gel separator, like you would with a you know, skin PRP, you have to do a dual spin process in order to multiply that platelet concentrate by five or seven times and get to this magic number of platelets, which um, is supported by the clinical literature, about 1.5 billion platelets per cc or 1.5 million platelets per microliter is the effective dose that increases stem cell mobilization and activity at that level, as well as new blood vessel formation or neovascularization. So there's some really good studies out there that we learned about. My um, background in general surgery, of course, we're always interested in wound healing. What can we do to make those wounds heal faster and better? And the orthopedic surgeon and my close friends in regenerative medicine taught me a lot about 15 years ago about how to really make this PRP supercharged. And uh, we've had some great results with it, not only to accelerate healing after transplant surgery and accelerate the results and the growth from those procedures, but also to, as a standalone treatment, uh, PRP and, and those types of therapies work really, really well. So, you know, there's a couple of nuanced things that we do to that PRP. Like I said, you know, spinning it down to that high concentrate, make sure we have enough volume to treat the wide area of the scalp applying it in the right place in the skin so that it activates the follicles, that it doesn't go too deep or too shallow, and that we don't hurt the follicles. Applying it uh, after we've done some photobiomodulation to it, uh, you know, using a multi-wavelength device that basically 
uh, lights up that syringe for a number of minutes before we do the injection, I think is a key component. And there's a lot of research now that supports the fact that that light therapy actually helps release more cytokines, release more of those active molecules from the platelets and give it more activity biologically at the level of the scalp. So we're super excited about our PRP treatments and the expansion of that biotherapy category. You know, there's a lot more just beyond the PRP as well. Like we've used now synthetic scaffolds like PDO, which stands for polydioxinone using threads in the scalp along with the PRP that are absorbable, tend to make the procedure in the same short period of time, make the results last longer. So we can get it down to about a once a year type of protocol now, instead of these series of, you know, month after month after month injections that you commonly hear about. And that's just old school PRP. They just, that's not using a scaffold. That's just, you know, plain PRP. It's a little puff of wind. This is something that we're doing now, the PDO grow and other therapies to make it last for a year or longer even. Yeah. And you're combining all of these along with the surgical procedures, along with the different and advanced drugs, and you're personalizing that to each one. Now, for people that are interested in that surgical procedure and really going that extra step, because what we talked about with laser and with the PRP are wonderful additions and can absolutely you know, push you in the right direction. But for someone with true, you know, baldness or, or large area, the surgical option is probably the best, correct? Yeah. So if the follicles are beyond repair, they're producing a hair that's not visible to the naked eye anymore, less than two millimeters, that's considered vellus hair. Those hairs are beyond repair, or if the follicles are simply not producing anything whatsoever, like in a hairline, you know, the PRP, medical therapies, nutrition, laser, all of that is not going to help you regrow that hairline. So you're going to need to move some hair follicles around. And that's what hair transplantation does. Um, we do it differently than years ago. It's no scalpel, no stitches anymore, no linear scar. We're using exclusively the gold standard, which is FUE, follicular unit extraction. And my practice, that's been this, you know, what we've been doing exclusively for well over a decade, probably almost 15 years of just FUE. And so that methodology enables us to take the grafts one at a time from the back of the scalp. So there's no linear scar and the grafts contain as little as a single hair follicle. So I have unique control over creating a soft and natural hairline to reframe the face in an aesthetically pleasing way that doesn't look like it's been transplanted, but looks normal and natural. And of course, when you don't have stitches and you don't have staples, you're going to heal much faster, much more comfortably. So the back end of the procedure is the recovery time is so much shorter and a lot less restrictive. And of course, gives you that flexibility of wearing your hair as short as you really want to uh, without any visible linear scar left behind it gives it away, so to speak. Yeah. It's really crazy how much of an art form it's become, right? Because I, I remember listening back in the day, it used to be hair plugs, right? And you know it right away. It'd be incredibly visible for everyone. And that's what for a very long time we thought hair restoration was, and it's advanced so much more. And I, I love that you're using all these different techniques from the laser to the PRP to and I would be remiss if I missed out on a few that that absolutely probably have some role in this. What is diet's role? And do you have a recommended dietary plan for someone that's looking to restore their hair? Yeah, we, we do. Absolutely. Well, think about this for just a moment. You know, the hair follicle is one of the most highly metabolic cell populations in your body. 
And it kind of makes sense. Like if God forbid you needed cancer therapy, uh, it, that's going to knock out a lot of things. And of course, you know that it can disrupt your bone marrow. It, it affects your immune system. It, of course, can affect your GI tract, also another highly replicating layer of cells in your body. And of course, knocking out your hair, right? We see hair loss due to chemotherapy. And so anything that you do metabolically, whether it's dietary restrictions, if you're in a, you know, a low fat, low protein, some other kind of special, even vegan or vegetarian diet, these types of things or restrictive diet, you're trying to lose weight, you can impact your hair in a detrimental way if you're not doing it carefully. And probably it's most commonly seen in bariatric patients, patients who have had surgery, like a, you know, a sleeve of whatnot, or, or a, um, uh, a bypass procedure, for the purpose of losing weight. And honestly, a lot of those patients do come to me uh, in that weight loss process because they're losing handfuls of hair. And it's because literally those hair follicles are starving for the, the protein and other things. So we definitely want to make sure that we provide good nutrition to the hair follicle right off the bat. So caloric intake is obviously important. Protein in particular, because those are the building blocks of, the, of collagen. We actually have a collagen protein preparation that we prescribe to patients specifically who are interested in growing better hair. It's a, it's a tripeptide, a tricollagen peptide that we use. And it's really simple and easy. You know, it dissolves in coffee or juice or water. It has no, no taste, no flavor, and you just drink it down. And it's super simple. I mean, I love bone broth, but I'm not going to be making bone broth every single day. I mean, uh, you know, when I break my fast, uh, I'll have bone broth, but you know, I like the scoop of collagen. It makes it simple and easy. And of course, as we age, you know, our collagen levels decline uh, every year. So we, our body just doesn't make as much collagen. And that's why our skin starts to sag and lose its resiliency and hair and skin and nails. It's all related. So boosting with collagen. And these other, obviously, there's multivitamins that are involved with hair, biotin and B-complex, so important. But the other thing about nutritionals is that there's also some nuanced herbs. And I think that we've seen in the industry, a lot of resurgence of kind of like, I would call it like ancient herbs, maybe even from the far East that we never really used for hair before. But now we know that if we can slow down inflammation or lower inflammation in the body, that we're going to help out the hair follicles. And there's curcumin turmeric that can do that. If we can do something to help us mitigate the effects of stress and cortisol, like use a stress adaptogen like ashwagandha or reishi mushrooms or other types of things like that, that would be great. If we are, let's say, not so keen on using an antiandrogen like finasteride because of potential for systemic side effects and things like that, and we, you know, maybe you don't want to even put it topically, which helps mitigate that, but uh, you want to use an antiandrogen, you can use saw palmetto. And that can be ingested or applied topically or in my shampoos and conditioners and hair care products. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we have today to kind of help out the hair situation, you know, immunity boosters so that we don't get, you know, these biotoxins and infections, those stress adaptogens, you know, so we can mitigate the effects of cortisol, those protein and collagen boosters. And the basic vitamins, we call that the A-list of vitamins, you know, the top performers and, you know, heroes like biotin and things like that. So that kind of makes up my wellness system for hair. And, uh, you know, it covers really the high points when it comes to, you know, nutritionally and nutraceutically, what would be important for somebody who's looking to grow is the healthiest, thickest, shiniest, longest uh, head of hair that you could get. What are your thoughts on products like Nutrafol that, that kind of do that, which are now, you know, have nationwide commercials I saw? 
I remember taking it a while back and now it's huge and all over the place. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of Nutrafol. We prescribe a ton of it. A lot of stuff that I just mentioned, uh, yeah, ashwagandha, the curcumin, turmeric, saw palmetto, the marine collagen, those are all ingredients in Nutrafol. Uh, so Nutrafol male is good. They have their own hair biotic. Uh, I have a, a probiotic that I like uh, that we have called the good guys, um, you know, meaning those are the, the good bacteria in our gut to help out with, with hair growth. And there's been some really interesting studies on the microbiome of the gut and its impact on immunity and inflammation, uh, as well as many other parts of our, of our, our wellness. Um, and the microbiome of our skin and our scalp is the next frontier. And we're going to see a lot more research on that in the coming years. And I think that's going to be a big, big area of treatment and therapy for people, especially if they have some irritation or inflammation of the scalp. So I'm, I'm all keen on all of that. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of Nutrafol. I, I had, I was the first to prescribe uh, Viviscal years ago. And obviously that's also a nice nationwide thing. You know, we couldn't get it here in the U S we had to import that from the UK years and years ago. And that, that was really a, you know, a very specialty product that no one could get at that time. So kind of interesting stuff, how it progresses. And speaking of skin microbiome and, and topical, what, what are your thoughts on shampoos? What, what are you recommending and what are you saying stay away from when it comes to hair loss? Yeah. So uh, it's a complicated topic for sure. And if you're not sure about that, all you have to do is take a little stroll down your supermarket shampoo aisle and you'll see thousands and thousands of bottles of shampoo and conditioners and so forth. So scalp hygiene, right? Keeping the scalp healthy and treating your hair properly, right? Because hair is a fiber, right? So if you, if it gets oily or dirty or product builds up or you've mistreated it, it's going to lose its aesthetic value, or it could actually even break. It could, you know, physically snap, right? From over styling with chemicals and heat. So there's a whole variety of things that we need to consider when, before we recommend a shampoo. And actually I have an entire department dedicated to that in my practice. So I have a trichology salon, so to speak. It's not really a salon, but it's a, it's a scalp care uh, department in my office. Trichology is the, is the care of hair and scalp. I have a certified internationally trained trichologist, Kimberly. She's amazing. And she's also a cosmetologist. So anytime there's some disruption of, let's say, scalp health, you know, and this is common, itchy, oily, flaky, dry scalp, or severed dermatitis, or other conditions, scalp acne, or even just dull looking hair, you know, brittle hair. Uh, she can handle that by doing a complete evaluation of the scalp, looking at it scientifically, you know, to determine this correct sequence of scalp care and scalp hygiene uh, that could be detailed and unique for each particular patient to be honest. So looking at, for example, scalp pH level, moisture level, sebum level, looking at the hair quality, the texture, is it colored? Is it not? Do you straighten it or smooth it or not? Uh, what's the length of your hair? What kind of products do you use? What kind of environment are you in? Do you work outside? Do you, uh, are you an athlete and you're playing tennis or golf? Do you spend time on your boat? Are you in the water? Is it salt water? Is it, is it chlorine? Do you color your hair? Do you, you know, blow dry it? You know, all of these different things are taken into consideration in order to kind of dial down into exactly what you should be doing in terms of the correct shampoos and conditioners and other therapies and other treatments for the scalp. So it's a, a simple question that has a very detailed answer, unfortunately. But I will say that the vast majority of patients in the practice, because they have thinning hair, they want some 
kind of hair care product that has therapeutic value, not just that cleanses the scalp and the hair or conditions and softens the scalp and conditions the hair. So my Bauman MD products have things like caffeine, saw palmetto, green tea extracts. And these are all ingredients that are going to have very, very specific properties at the level of the scalp in order to improve hair follicle function and to keep the scalp healthy. We have some CBD components coming out in our hair care products. And so I encourage uh, our patients to be on the lookout for that. And we've also learned through some research at the University of Miami that hair follicles have this unique olfactory sense that they can sense your, your hair follicles can actually smell certain fragrances and scents and respond to them. And so many of my new hair care products, which are soon to be available, have these kinds of stimulants in them as well, which are going to be great for a healthy scalp and, and of course, excellent hair growth. Yeah, it's it's a wonderful inside and out approach, right? Because it's what you put in your body, also what you get rid of in toxins and chemicals. And then it's what you put on your skin as well to nourish it. Now, we met up at the Biohacking Congress in Miami, and I heard you on Dave Asprey's podcast before, and you're pretty, uh, you know, you're into biohacking. Tell, tell me, how'd you get I, into I, that? Because I do find that doctors usually sometimes step away and try to distance themselves. Whereas I see, I've always said this, even to Dave and others, that, you know, there's such a small gap. It's, it's really almost the same thing. Biohacking is the optimization, self-optimization and medicine should really be looking to self-optimize our health, right? And get us in there. Correct. It tells your story and how you got yeah. into biohacking. So years ago, we used to just be like, you know, health fanatics. And yeah. now we're biohackers, right? Exactly. So, <laughs> it, you know, but I would say that my first uh, introduction to biohacking really was at the American Academy of Anti-Aging. And I've been a member of the A4M for over 20 years. So, and since 1998, I've been going to these conferences uh, and other ones that are similar in terms of age management, longevity, things that are looking to, you know, ways to improve not just lifespan, but also health span, putting more, not just years in our life, but more life in our years, right? And I've always been kind of keen on that. And it was actually one of my early mentors that introduced me to that uh, idea, even in my hair transplant training. Uh, he was drinking wheatgrass, you know, for lunch and things like that. I'm like, what is all that? Let me taste that. Oh my God. You know, hopefully that's doing something healthy for you because it tastes terrible, right? <laughs> we should be playing golf on that stuff, not drinking <laughs> it down. But anyway, the point was, is that over the years, um, I've been exposed to a lot of these alternative therapies and functional medicine. And so I guess I've been kind of open to it in certain ways that many other physicians had not been. In my traditional medical training, I got introduced to acupuncture as an elective in medical school. So again, that was something that New York Medical College was doing that many other schools were not at that time in the 1990s. And that's kind of opening physicians' eyes to these alternatives and maybe even ancient pathways of healing. And so I always thought about that. And I actually met Dave Asprey at the conference in, I think it was in 2015 or 2016, did a keynote. And uh, of course, he was talking about coffee recipes and things like that. And I don't know if it registered right away, but I did see the coffee in the expo area. And um, it wasn't really until I started to try to change. I noticed that my body was changing and not in a good way. And uh, I spoke to my personal trainer about it, who's also, you know, again, a health fanatic, not necessarily a biohacker at the time. And he's like, well, some of my clients are doing this coffee thing. And I'm like, I think I heard about that somewhere. Uh, you know, this buttered coffee. And so uh, that was really the first biohack that got me started on my journey. 
because originally I was doing, I guess what most people would consider like a more traditional approach. Like I'd make this big, you know, uh, blender mixture of protein and veggies and fruit, you know, as a breakfast item just to try to hold me off. So I wouldn't be hungry for lunch. And it was actually having the opposite effect. So my caloric intake was increasing and I was gaining weight. And so the buttered coffee recipe actually started my weight loss journey. And not that I was overweight, but I just didn't like the way things were kind of, you know, happening in my body. Things were getting redistributed in a way that was not aesthetically pleasing. (laughs) And uh, my workouts were not really that productive either at that time. So anyway, so the buttered coffee helped me. Um, I credit Dave Asprey for that. And, uh, you know, we met casually at that time, but eventually, obviously we got to know each other a little bit better. And, um, my biohacking journey has taken me through, um, trying to restore my sleep patterns, which were disrupted from my internship and residency program. Obviously I wear the aura ring and and I've been doing that for years. I got the gen three, which is awesome. I do try to practice meditation. I've never been great at it. So I do use things like the brain tap and happy, uh, the, the pulse, pulse electromagnetic field. Um, in terms of sleep hacks, I've got the blue blocking glasses. I, you know, try to turn off the lights and sounds and such at night. I also have the chili pad and, and chili blanket and such, uh, to cool everything down to a nice, uh, cool temperature so that I, I find that I sleep deeper at a cooler temperature. And also the weighted blanket helps out a lot. I, I wear toe shoes. So uh, it's been a topic of conversation uh, for my patients. They're like, oh, hey, doc, or, you know, let me see those shoes. Are they comfortable? I'm like, hell no, they're not. <laughs> That's not the idea. They're uncomfortable. They make your feet do what they're supposed to do. So different things like that. And of course, the intermittent fasting. So the bullet co- bulletproof coffee recipe kind of led into the intermittent fasting thing. So I'm 18, six, five days a week. And then now once a quarter, once every two months, I'll fast for either three to five days, uh, water fast. Mm. So that's kind of been, you know, the primary biohacking things that I've done with some other little things here or there. You know, I, I volunteer my time as a medical director for Gray Team, which is a local 501c3 nonprofit. We take care of military veterans. They have a very robust uh, fitness and nutritional program, and I've brought in uh, red light beds. So we do uh, laser therapy, photobiomodulation beds for pain control. We have a far infrared sauna for detoxification and relaxation. We have a pulse electromagnetic field, pulse electromagnetic field devices for injuries, for pain, for chronic pain. Uh, we have the PEMI, the VEMI. We've got um, uh, WAVIs to do EEGs portably on the scalp and uh, not just nutritional supplementation for traumatic brain injury, but also photobiomodulation devices for that as well. And so I brought in also uh, acupuncture and Tai Chi and some other things, you know, as part of the medical program there to help our military veterans basically avoid PTSD related suicide, chronic pain, um, self-medication and to provide a social circle for them of support. So, uh, we kind of bring the biohacking together with the nutritional and the other stuff, uh, and the fitness, of course, you know, for them as well as for us. And we get to enjoy it as well. Yeah. A, a really comprehensive approach to it, an amazing cause. And, and another amazing cause that I, I have to mention here is your own, the Bauman Philanthropic, uh, foundation. So tell us a little bit about that and the work you're doing there. Yeah, well, for the past over 20 years, uh, ever since I started the practice, almost 25 years now, we've always done pro bono work for patients who are in need, whether it be from injury or trauma, accident victims, obviously the injured military, of course, 
people who have had dog bites or car accidents or even um, radiation to their to their face for uh, for cancer and things like that. We've tried to do as much as we could at a pro bono level, meaning provide either free services for those who are in need or reduced cost services uh, for those who uh, could not afford the procedures and treatments and reconstructive work that we provide. And so the Bauman Philanthropic Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit that handles and subsidizes those procedures. And uh, many of my patients who have gone through their own hair transplant procedures have donated to that organization so that we could provide those pro bono cases uh, and pro bono work and treatments to those patients who are in need. And I'll just give you a great example. We had um, a woman who had contacted me through social media, found out about some of the cranial prosthetic work that we do. So this is the non-hair transplant, non-surgical hair replacement procedures that we do uh, using 3D printed cranial prosthetics that come out of Bologna, Italy from Cesare Ragazzi Laboratories. And uh, she contacted me and wondered if she would be a candidate for it. And we did her cranial prosthetics through the Bauman Philanthropic Foundation. She had a horrific scalp burn as a child that basically obliterated the vast majority of her hair and most of her skin of her scalp. And so she had severe scar tissue all the way through. So she's not a candidate for hair transplants, but we did do the cranial prosthesis for her. And uh, it, for her, it was life changing. And you can you can see her story on the Internet and, uh, and see it on my YouTube channel and such. And it's one of the highlights of the Bauman Philanthropic Foundation. But we've done you know hundreds of cases like that uh, through the foundation. So it's 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 truly a blessing uh, to be able to provide that uh, for our patients. And uh, we kind of we uh, twist the arm of our vendors a little bit to help us out with some of those things as well. And, and of course, you know, existing patients who. Um, you know, want to give back to those who are in need and, and even others in the community. Um, you know, they do donate to the Bauman Philanthropic Foundation. So it's, it's been, a, it's been a great um, a tool to be able to help those who are in need. Absolutely. Awesome stuff. Now tell me, what do you feel like the future of hair restoration? Where is it going? What are you excited about for the future? Yeah, well, probably on the tip of everyone's tongue is when are we going to have an unlimited supply of hair, doc? You know, when are we going to have hair cloning? That's what everybody wants to know. And and my dad included, because he's had, you know, about 8,000 grafts from a completely bald head of hair. And he wants to know when the hair cloning is coming available. And of course, the hair cloning researchers always kind of say the same thing for the past 20 years. Oh, it'll be another five years. But it's, we're not quite there yet. But I am excited that uh, some friends of mine, Alexei Tursky, a scientist and researcher down in San Diego and the founder of Stemson, along with his partner uh, and CEO, Jeff Hamilton, uh, those guys are doing some amazing work there at their research facility using induced pluripotential stem cells to create hopefully an unlimited supply of hair follicles. Now, they've accomplished it to some degree in the mice model and the mouse model. And they're moving now with, they've got a, a pretty big capital investment from Allergan to move into the pig model. So the porcine model should work out. If Should that work, I think that they would move into human trials. But, you know, how fast or how slow and what kind of uh, barriers or obstacles they'll have to surmount or challenges they'll have to, uh, uh, you know, surmount, I don't know. But uh, we're keeping a close eye on them. They're on this side of the pond, at least. And I can easily visit them. And as I, I've done, I've, I've seen the mice, uh, you know. Uh, that they're working with. So uh, I've seen the hair under the microscope and all that business. So it's pretty cool. 
but it's not really ready for prime time yet. So if you're out there and you're waiting for hair cloning, my suggestion is yes, don't give up hope, but also yes, get some treatment uh, to keep your existing hair in the meantime, uh, because we just don't know when it's going to become available. Do you think this is something that hair loss is going to be something that, you know, is, is a thing of the past in, in our lifetime? Well, I don't know. I mean, obviously, just like uh, my dad being a dentist, uh, his goal is to basically eliminate the need for his, uh, his profession. Uh, I feel kind of the same obligation in the world of hair loss. You know, the better treatments we have, uh, the less uh, we'll need our services and, and therapies. You know, if we can proactively stop the progression of hair loss at an early stage, whether it be through genetic testing and early intervention, certainly the average age of our patients has come down quite a bit over the past 20 years. And I, I would credit that to the early inter successful early interventions. Um, even parents of, of kids, teenagers who are starting to lose their hair or kids in college who are thinning, the parents know, hey, you got to get on this early. So, you know, in their teens, yeah, they got braces. And then in their 20s, they started some therapies, you know, maybe they're not a great candidate for a transplant at that age, certainly they can definitely do some non-invasive treatments to hold on to what they have. And that's where some of the non-invasive, non-surgical interventions come in, whether it be PRP or PDO grow, um, lifestyle changes to improve their health and wellness, uh, medications or other things as tolerated or as desired. And of course, laser light therapy is a good part of that. So uh, I'm seeing a lot of second generation uh, families coming in, wanting to, to make sure that their kids, you know, even though their kid, the kids are in their 20s, you know, that they're having a good, healthy head of hair as they go out into the workforce and out into their social lives and things like that. Yeah, that ability to get ahead of it before it becomes a problem. Like, like I wish, you know, 20, 30 years ago when I started seeing my hair receding and hair loss, that we had things like lasers and PRP and all these other things we have and even the supplements. And, and that's, that's the blessing of the advancements we've seen. And you've pioneered some of that. So- that, that's amazing work. Dr. Baum, tell us where we could learn more about you, about the clinic, everything. Yeah. I mean, if there's someone out there in your life or you especially are thinking about hair loss, you're experiencing hair loss yourself, or you know somebody, a loved one or a friend, um, you got to send them to the website, baumanmedical.com, B-A-U-M-A-N medical.com. And you can click on a link there to uh, request a consultation, or even just to ask a question. Um, you can click on a, on the button that says, you'll ask a question. You can ask me anything through the website and I will respond to you personally. Um, I might respond to, Hey, you need a consultation if you're trying to figure out, you know, what the right pathway forward is, but there's a ton of information. My website's been up for over 20 years. It's got hundreds and hundreds of pages of information. There are hundreds of videos that are on that website. And of course, you can follow me on either YouTube, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, all the traditional uh, social media channels, Twitter, and Facebook, you name it, I'm out there. Uh, you, you can certainly find me. You can direct message me just about anywhere on, on uh, Facebook or, or Instagram. And I usually respond within about 24 hours if I see the message. So I'm happy to answer questions and, uh, and help people out who are struggling out there with hair loss. And the good news is that there's a lot of great solutions. So, but the website and a consultation is worth every penny that you're going to spend on that. You'll be a patient for life in the practice. You never have to spend another dollar to, um, to connect with me or get measured and things like that. Once you're in the practice with the consultation fee, um, you can also meet if, 
it sometimes the wait time is long. You can also connect with my nurse practitioner has been with the practice for many years. She knows all the protocols. We work together on all the patients. Sometimes her schedule is a little bit lighter than mine, a little bit less on the wait time. But if you know specifically that you need or want a hair transplant, or if you've had a hair transplant in the past, and you need a touch-up or a second opinion, then you may want to opt for the fast-track program where you can actually schedule a day as uh, for procedure tentatively as well as a consultation in kind of a consecutive parallel path. And that's something new that we have for this year. It's amazing. You really got this stuff down to an art form, and I, I love following you over the years and seeing how much this has transformed. And thank you for being a pioneer in this, uh, you know, important, I have to say, uh, field of medicine and I hope more and more people get that solution and get that confidence back and continue to feel healthy, look healthy and everything. So thank you so much. Really appreciate you being on the show and taking your time today. Hey, it's been my pleasure, Catherine. Really, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, I look forward to helping more of your audience. If they have hair loss questions, uh, you know, they can reach out and obviously we'll get them the answers that they need and maybe even do a follow-up sometime. Amazing. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned a thing or two from Dr. Bauman, not just on hair, but on health as a whole. You can blame your genes for your hair loss, or you can realize you do have options and amazing biohacks for healthier hair, regardless of your genes. I hope you choose the latter. Check out Dr. Bauman's work and his practice at baumanmedical.com. And if you like this podcast, leave us a rating on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this. Until next time, Keep writing your own healing story.